0: Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you again. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, like Becca was saying, if you're new or visiting, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And, and like she was saying, one of the best ways to do that is a small group. And so we encourage you to, to check out one of those small groups. i also love to invite you uh, into our summer sermon series. We're calling it uh, Jesus on Every Page. And what we're doing throughout the summer is taking a look at a bunch of different Old Testament passages together, some you may be familiar with, some you probably aren't, and we're highlighting how all of them aren't ultimately meant to just kind of teach us moral lessons about who we're supposed to be or be like or what we should or shouldn't be doing, but instead at the heart of all the stories is, is the person and the work of Jesus. They're meant to point us towards him. And, and so we've seen in our study so far how the, the idea that the whole Bible, the Old Testament, not just the new, uh, is first and foremost about God and the gospel, we've seen how that isn't something I came up with, that's not something some brilliant pastor or theologian invented. Instead, uh, that's what Jesus himself taught. Places like John chapter 5 and Luke 24, he teaches both the religious leaders as well as the disciples that all of the scriptures point to him, they're about him. And so at the heart of our time this summer studying the Old Testament is the desire that we might learn to read the Bible like Jesus did with him at the center of all of it. And so this morning I'm going to do just that as we take a look at the story of a woman named Rahab in the book of Joshua chapter 2 together. So the book of Joshua picks up the story of God's people in the Old Testament about 40 years after they had uh, left Egypt in the Exodus. And for the second time, God's led his people to the edge of the promised land, a land he'd promised Abraham to, to give his people. And the first time, if you remember, things had not gone so well. God had just miraculously uh, brought them up out of Egypt and delivered them out of hundreds of years of slavery, and yet when they get to the edge of the promised land, they hear about the people that are in the land, and they're filled with fear and dread and doubt. And so instead of trusting that the same God who had parted an ocean for them uh, could part a few peoples for them, they, they choose instead to be full of doubt. And so rather than entering the land, God caused them to wander around in the desert until everyone from that faithless generation had died off. And And so needless to say, as they come to the edge of the promised land again, nobody wants to repeat that mistake, right? Camping is bad enough, camping in the desert, the absolute worst, right? Nobody wants to do that for one more night, let alone 40 more years, right? And so as they come again to the borders of Canaan, though, they're, they're preparing to enter the promised land, but there's they're still, like, there's this sense of unsureness, and, and there's hope, but there's also still some lingering doubts. And so they send a few spies to go scope things out, and while investigating the, the Canaanite stronghold of Jericho, these two spies, they meet a, a pagan woman named Rahab. And we're going to see how this woman not only saves their sorry spy butts, but how uh, she exhibits this kind of faith that just like puts the faith of God's own people to shame. And so as we take a look at her story this morning, we're going to see the author of Joshua doing here is giving us a glimpse at what true faith really looks like. He's going to be showing us just like a paradigm, a picture of what true, authentic saving faith really looks like, and he's going to be showing us how it transforms even the most unlikely of people. And so it is such a cool story, can't wait to share it with you and and look forward to opening God's word with you this morning. So with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll dive into the book of Joshua and see if we can't find Jesus on every page. God, thanks so much for you and uh, for our time together. We're grateful for you and grateful most of all that you might... uh, just that you might love us, that you might keep your word, so that we might know your great love for us. And so, as we come to study it again this morning, God, might you be uh, gracious to help us to see Jesus on every page. And as we look at the story of Rahab and, and her faith, uh, God, might the good news of your redeeming, restoring work in people's lives uh, might it be really good news to us this morning, and might it fill us with the kind of faith that you filled Rahab with, and might it cause us to live lives of faith um, unto your glory. And so we pray that you might do that for us. God, I can't make that true of us, but you can. And so we pray this morning that you would, and that the gospel would be good news to us. Amen. All right, well, like I said, we're going to be this morning in Joshua chapter 2. Begins this way. And Joshua, the son of Nun secretly sent two spies from Shittim, Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. And so they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. And so the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. And I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. And so the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road. And that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Now, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. And we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted in fear everyone's courage failed because of you for the lord your god is god in heaven above and on earth below now then please swear to me by the lord that you will show kindness to my family because i have shown kindness to you give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death our lives for your lives the men assured her if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. And so she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And she said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days and, and, uh, until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us, unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down." And unless you have brought your father and mother and brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own hands. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we'll be released from the oath that you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. And so she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And when they left, they went into the hills and they stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. And then then they said to Joshua, "Surely The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands, and all the people are melting in fear because of us. Now, like we said on the front end this morning, at the heart of this passage is this theme of faith, right? The reality is that we live in kind of an age where the concept of faith is kind of increasingly seen as it's kind of like a vice for kind of superstitious and weak-minded people, right? If you're a smart modern person, you don't need faith, right? You got data, you got science, you got facts, right? But this is really a false dichotomy because faith and facts are are not separate from each other. They're not at odds. Instead, faith simply means to trust or rely on something. And the reality is that all of us exercise faith every day, right? The most devout monk to the most detailed scientist. We exercise faith in things, right? You're doing it right now as you sit in the chair that you are relying on to hold your own weight, right? We exercise faith in systems, right? Like the bank that you put your money in, you're trusting them to invest it wisely and to transfer that money to the right accounts when you click the buy it now button on Amazon, And you exercise faith in people, right, to diagnose or help to repair our our bodies when they're sick or our cars when they're broken. You see, all of us exercise faith. So the question is not if we should have faith, right? The question that we need to ask is who or what is our faith in? Who or what are you trusting and relying on? See, and what we put our faith in matters. It, It really does change things in fact this morning we're going to see in the passage that faith is the thing that radically changes the outcomes of everyone in the passage most notably Rahab right it's faith by faith that she goes from a a foreigner an outsider to being a very member of the family of God by faith Rahab's faith is this remarkable thing. It's incredible, actually, especially when you contrast it as the author of Joshua is doing intentionally with the faithlessness and the fearfulness of God's people. In her faith, it shines as this beautiful, stark contrast to the doubt of God's own people as they stand on the edge of this promised land. And as we take a look at Rahab's faith this morning and this paradigm, this picture that her faith shows us about what real, true faith looks like, I want to show you five things the passage highlights for us about the nature of Rahab's faith. We're going to see the, the object of her faith, the source of it, the basis of it, the evidence of it, and lastly, we're going to see the results of her faith. Right, so let's dive in at the very beginning, right the object of Rahab's faith. We see, at the beginning of the story, she meets these two spies who are apparently objectively terrible at their jobs, right? Because they get caught right away. It's obvious that there's spies going around the city. But instead of just outing them and getting a reward, as I'm sure she might have done, she risks everything not only to lie, not only to hide them, but to lie on their behalf and then to give them advice about how not to get caught, right? She's, she's risked everything. She gets caught, they get caught, it, it's done. And the question you're meant to ask as a reader then is, why? Like what would cause this pagan woman to risk everything for these two men she's never met before? What would cause her to do that? Well, verses 9 through 16, they record for us Rahab's profession of faith in God. And there is so much here, but verse 11 to us reveals the most important thing about her faith, and it's the object of her faith. You see, uh, Rahab tells the spies in verse 11, The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Here's a, a Canaanite prostitute who would have been deeply aware of the religious beliefs of her own culture because she would have been a part of the practice of those religious beliefs, right? And she says to these spies, what she says to them is not lost on them. They're reading through the lines. She doesn't say a God. She says the God, your God, the Lord. In your Bible, that word's going to be all caps, And what that means is that she is using the covenant name of God, his personal name, Yahweh. And she uses God's personal name, and in doing so what she is saying is two really profound things. Number one, she is saying that Yahweh is God, not Baal and not Asherah nor any of the other Canaanite gods. It's Yahweh who is God. He is the only one who reigns in heaven above and on earth below. There's one God who is worthy of her allegiance, and it's him. But more than that, in using God's personal name, she is saying that this God is not just the spies. He's not just their God, but that he is her God as well. And she doesn't mince words. There's no uncertainty in her profession of faith. She's heard all that God's done at the Red Sea, and she's heard how God delivered the Ammonite kings into Israel's hand and how he destroyed them. And so there is one conclusion she's reached: that this God, that Yahweh, is the one true God. And some say this is not really a true profession of faith, right? She's just, this lady, she's just trying to save her skin, so she'll say, say anything. And yet, as one commentator notes, she may have been afraid. So were all the other Canaanites, but she's also come to believe in her heart that there was only one true God. This God's actions on behalf of his people had convinced her. Nancy Guthrie says it this way. She says, the rest of the Canaanites were afraid, but their, their fear had not melted into faith. Only Rahab's had. See, in her profession of faith in the Lord, the God of the Israelites was not just an acknowledgement of her faith in Yahweh, in God, but rather it was as well a rejection of the gods of her own culture. It's a rejection of their ability in any way, shape, or form to save or rescue or help her. Rahab didn't have all of the answers, but she certainly had the answer that mattered the most. Only this God could save her. Only he was worthy of her allegiance. And her profession of faith to these spies, it reveals she's put her trust in him. The object of her faith was God. Yahweh, God alone. How incredible, how unlikely, right? how unbelievable Right? that a, a pagan harlot boldly professing faith in what the Israelites themselves had trouble believing. That this one true God was indeed destined to give them this land. Rahab was convinced of it. And she was convinced that he was the only God worth save, that could save her from it. Only God could bring about that kind of faith in someone. You see, God is not just the object of her faith, he's also the source of it. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39, God tells his people, he says, Acknowledge, take heart this day, that the Lord is the God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other Those words should sound familiar to you because they're the very words that Rahab uttered to the spies. And I can guarantee you that she had not read that somewhere. She had not heard, like she she wasn't like having like a little backyard Bible study with some of her Canaanite friends exploring faith in God. That's not what was going on. Only God could have brought about that kind of a response in her. You see, God was drawing Rahab to himself, just as he had with Abraham in the beginning. He was revealing himself to her long before anyone came telling her about this God. God was at work bringing about faith in her. As I read the passage this week, it reminded me so much of a a friend of mine in college I'd been praying for years for this friend that God might give me a chance to share my faith with him. And, and one night God gave me a chance to do that. And as I uh, kind of shared some of my own story with my friend and, and waited in hopes that he might respond, I remember my friend who was probably the most staunch atheist I had ever met. He just very clearly thought that anybody who had faith was dumb and that believing in God was just kind of just like for weak people and that it was just all foolishness. And so as I shared about my hope in Jesus with my friend that night, I waited for him to respond and he, he looked at me and he just said, you know, I was walking back from class the other day and I thought, there has to be a God and I wish someone, I wish I knew somebody who could help me get to know him. See, that's just like Rahab's faith. I hadn't like shared something with him. I hadn't laid everything out. Like i had been praying that God might do something and God was the one who was at work behind the scenes with my friend. Long before I got the chance to study God's word with him or see him profess faith in Christ, God was pursuing my friend. He was drawing him. He was revealing himself to him. And so long before somebody explained to Rahab exactly who this God was and what it meant to follow him, God was the one writing his words on her heart. It was the father who was drawing her to himself. See, God's not only the object of her faith, he's the one who has enabled her faith. He's the one who's given it to her. You see, the rest of the Canaanites have heard all the same stories. They have all heard about the incidents at the Red Sea and the Amorite kings who had been destroyed, and yet Rahab's heart is the only one for whom fear has transformed into faith. See, God's the one who's done that. One commentator wrote something really stuck out to me this week. He said it this way. The word about God, the uniqueness of his sovereign authority and power over the whole of creation displayed in what he's done for his people, it had penetrated Jericho's walls. And when the word of God gets into enemy territory, only two reactions are possible. Either there is faith in the greatness of the Lord and a casting of oneself entirely on his mercy, as Rahab does, or there is fear, which determines to resist God's supremacy, to challenge his will, and continue to fight against his purposes, see neutrality is impossible. See God, the word about God had entered into Jericho, and it had transformed Rahab's fear into faith. And it was God who was doing that. And so the object of her faith, the one she's put her complete trust in, and the one who's enabled her to respond to seeing his works with faith instead of just mere fear, and we're meant to see in these two remarkable things, we're meant to see the basis of this woman's faith, see that it can only be the miraculous and beautiful unmerited grace of God. See, Rahab is a pagan prostitute. There is nothing about her life that we are meant to look at and to think, wow, she really deserved for God to rescue her. Yeah, she really had this edge. There was something about her that God, God really, God really there's something he could start with and move her along the line. No, that's not what's going on. The whole point that we're meant to see in God saving her is that God rescues and saves and redeems, not based on who she is, but based on who he is. He's the basis of her faith, the, the sovereign and gracious Savior of all who would call on His name. And so, Rahab, a foreigner and a prostitute, is the epitome of somebody who doesn't deserve or earn God's merit to merit God's mercy. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point. That God is welling up in this woman faith instead of fear. And He does it by grace. His unmerited grace. And so Rahab's profession of faith is the result of God's gracious revelation of himself to her. But the passage doesn't just stop with her profession of faith, although crucial. It goes on to make clear that her profession of faith was just part of her story. It was the first half of her, the evidence of her faith. See, the New Testament affirms this. James, chapter, uh, James writes in chapter 2, he says, A person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith which is alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. You see, true saving faith throughout the Bible is always described never as mere intellectual agreement. It's not an agreement with a fact, but it is something that is always evidenced by external actions because the truth, the reality of the world is that what you believe always changes what you do. If I have a rock in my hand and you think I'm going to throw it at you, you duck. And if you don't think I'm going to throw it, you won't move because what you believe, it changes what you do. And so the passage points out that her profession of faith is intrinsically intertwined with her actions. She hides the spies. She lies about to them, them to the king. She sends them off with bad advice. Why? Because it's the outworking of her faith. Her faith is real. It's authentic. She's worth, it's worth risking everything for. It's her faith in God that's caused her actions. See, some of you are here this morning, maybe like Rahab, you've made a profession of faith. But the reality is, is that there is absolutely no fruit in your life of that faith. You still function like God in your own life, right? God's maybe an advisor, right? He's somebody whose suggestions you might take into consideration if you've got some spare time, but he is certainly not the Lord of your life. You are. And in love for you this morning, I just need to shoot straight with you. That's not saving faith. If your faith is just some intellectual thing, right? The Bible doesn't ever call that the kind of faith that saves. See, saving faith is always changing faith. It always transforms us. See, indifference is is impossible with God. And so it's the combination of her actions and her profession that are the evidence of her faith. The spy's interaction with her affirms this as well. Right. In places like Deuteronomy 7 and, and Deuteronomy 20, God makes it abundantly, obviously, overwhelmingly clear, right, that, that the Israelites were expressly forbidden from entering into any and all covenants and commitments and relationships with Canaanites. Just a few chapters later in Joshua 9, we read about the disastrous consequences that God brings about when the Israelites make a, a treaty with another Canaanite group. And the book of Judges is full of all of the horrific consequences in the lives of the, God's people for disobeying God's commands in this way. And so the question that you have to see is, so why, why do these two spies make this covenant with Rahab? Why are they willing to do this thing that God has expressly forbid them on the very front end of this brand new campaign? More critically, why does the author of Joshua seem to have no qualms about this? There's not a tone of sketchiness, like there's no, there's no doubtfulness about it. It's positive. One commentator helpfully points out this, he answers it this way. He says, the crucial difference is Rahab's confession of faith in Israel's God. See, by this she's made herself an Israelite, so to speak. She chose to cast her lot with Israel's God, not with the Canaanites' gods. Prior to this confession of faith, the spies showed no intentions of entering into any treaties or any agreements with her or with any Canaanite. However, it's her confession of faith that has made all the difference. See, prior to this confession of faith, the spies, again, they showed no intentions of entering into any agreement with her and yet they've seen in her actions and her profession of faith the the evidence of this real, authentic faith, right? They see her not as a a pagan harlot, but as an Israelite sister. See, in her eyes, in their eyes, she's gone from foreigner to family. Why? Because of faith. You see, and it's the evidence of her faith we see leads to the results of it. And they're just as amazing as the existence of her faith in the first place. Her faith is placed in the one true God, revealed by her actions and and her words. They lead her to ask the spies for help. Verse 12, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you'll show kindness to my family. And her faith in God is leading her to run to him and to his people for grace and mercy It's not just that she believes that he's the only God that can save and his people as God's representatives can save. It's that she runs to them for safety. See, her faith in God is leading her to run to him and to his people for mercy and rescue. One commentator sums it up this way. Genuine faith never rests content with being convinced of the reality of God. It always presses on To take refuge in him. For it is not just a matter of correct belief, but of desperate need. See the spies, they they see it, and they respond our lives for years, they make a covenant with her that will that they will save her when they conquer the city, something that by faith both they and Rahab know is imminent. And so God meets her in her need for him and in her plea for rescue, and God saves her. Because of his grace, she's put her faith in him alone. Joshua 6 goes on to recount the Israelites' conquering of the city of Jericho. And in verse 25, you read that, Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her because she had hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among them to this very day. See, God had saved Rahab, and he had turned a foreigner into a family of God. And in doing so, he not only shows what it looks like to have real, authentic faith in this great God, but he shows to the spies that this God is powerfully at work. That he's the one who is bringing about faith in the most unlikely of people, and he's the one who's going to bring them into the land in the most unlikely of ways. See, but it gets even better because the spies, they gave Rahab a scarlet cord to hang out of her window. And it was a sign showing her faith in the covenant, in the promise that they had made with her. On the eve of the destruction of Jericho, that scarlet cord was hanging out Rahab's window. And as Rahab and her family were waiting in their home in hope and in faith that the covenant they had made with with these Israelites would be kept, the Israelites in their camp or remembering a night where God had kept his covenant with them. And 40 years prior, as they left, prepared to leave Egypt in the great exodus, they had painted the blood of lamb on the doorposts of their homes. In hope, in faith, that the God who promised to pass over judgment them, that he would do it. And so in faith, Rahab trusted the promise these spies had made to her representing God and his people as she tied the scarlet cord to her window. And the night of the Passover, the night before the battle of Jericho, what both the Israelites and what Rahab were doing, what they were both remembering, they were claiming the covenant that had been offered to them. They were claiming it by faith. You see, by faith, Rahab becomes a part of the story of God's redeeming work in saving his people. You see, God doesn't just save Rahab. You see, he invites her into his story of redemption And she's not just a part of the story of the fall of Jericho and the entrance of the Israelites into the promised land. No, Rahab's faith is far more incredible than that. See, God makes her a part of an even bigger story of his people's redemption, a part of the story of rescue of his people, not just from slavery in Egypt or from uh, foes in the promised land, but from the ultimate enemies of Satan and sin and death. And he makes her a part of the story of their entrance into the ultimate promised land. You see, Rahab would go on, we read, to have a son named Boaz. Maybe you remember that name from our study in our time in the book of Ruth. Boaz redeems and marries a woman named Ruth, a foreigner who, like his own mother, had put her faith in the one true God. The book of Matthew records a genealogy where both of these foreign women, pagans, are included in Jesus' own family line. You see, God turned foreigners into family by faith. And it's through their faith that God not only rescues them, but he brings about the rescue for us. See, Rahab goes from being a foreigner to a part of God's family by faith, and so do we. And you know, I know throughout our series, I've made a big deal about how oftentimes when we're reading these Old Testament stories, we align ourselves with the wrong people in the stories. This is not one of those times. You and I are just like Rahab. I'll never forget, with tears in his eyes, one of my seminary professors. He said about Rahab's story, humanly speaking. Jesus came from a sordid bloodline. A harlot was his ancestor. But does that not underscore the very reason for which he came to save? For you and I, we are just like Rahab. We prostituted ourselves to other gods and worshipped all kinds of idols, and yet God comes offering us salvation. And our only hope, just like Rahab's, is the great grace of God. For she put her feeble trust in this one true God, and he became her savior. And because of that, God used her as an instrument to bring the Messiah into the world. See, Rahab was a foreigner who through faith God brings into his family. And he does the same for you and me. Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, reminding the church about the gospel. He says this Remember, therefore, that formerly you were Gentiles by birth, were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by what? By his blood. Verse 8, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not by works, so that none of you can boast. See, like Rahab, you and I were dead in our sins. And yet, because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive in Christ even while we were still dead. In order, Ephesians says, why does he do it? in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in kindness through Christ Jesus. You see, Rahab's story of salvation by faith is such good news. And it was good news for her, and it was good news for the spies, and it was good news for the Israelites, and it is good news for you and me. You see, because her faith serves as this paradigm and a model for us, not only of God's power to save, but of this model for what true saving faith in us looks like. You see, the object of Rahab's saving faith was God alone. Hebrews chapter one tells us that it's Jesus who is the very image of God, his exact representation in nature. He's the object of our saving faith. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's the object of it. It's Jesus and it's him alone. You see, the gospel is not Jesus plus good works and it's not Jesus plus taking communion and it's not Jesus plus baptism or church attendance or giving or doing all the right things. It's just faith in Jesus. And the gospel is not Jesus or it's not jesus or some other God, some other rescue some other options it's just him and so there was no other place that rahab could run for rescue and there was no other place she did she put all her chips in with god and she rejected the ability of anyone or anything else to save her you see god was the object of her faith and he must be indeed the sole object of ours But the good news is more than that, that he is not just the object of our faith, he's the source of it. For he's the one who enables Rahab's faith and he is the one who enables ours. As Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. Ephesians 2, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive. And so on the basis of God's unmerited grace, fuels faith in us. I hope you see the magnitude of that. I hope that's good news to you this morning. See, it wasn't just meant to be good news for Rahab. It's meant for you and I too. You do not need to be good enough. You cannot be. You do not need to be clean enough. You never will be. You can't clean yourself up. You can't fix yourself. The order of operations doesn't work like that. The way salvation works is when we admit that we are hopeless without God. And it's when we admit our need for him that he is able to come and bring restoration and redemption into into our lives. See, like Rahab, a pagan prostitute, in the place of business, God comes and he rescues us, not before we clean ourselves up, but he does it when we'll admit that we can't and that we need him to transform us. When that happens, like Rahab, the evidence our faith will be found not just in our words, but in lives that are increasingly transformed by him. What do your actions reveal about where your faith truly lies? Like I said before, some of you are here this morning, and you've made a profession of faith, but there's no fruit in your life from it. And you are here this morning by God's grace that you might have real faith, not the fake stuff. Ask him to bring that out in you. Ask him to cause the truth about who he is to transform who you are. He wants to do that in you. Ask him that he would. See, he wants to bring about evidence in our faith. And he wants to bring about the results of saving faith as well. Not only that we're saved from the penalty of our sin, but that like Rahab, we are invited into God's grand story of redemption. You see, God used her in more ways than she could possibly have known. And he is inviting each and every one of us to be a part of the redeeming work that he is doing in the lives of people all around us. And one of the primary ways you get to do that is by telling the stories of all that God's done for you making his great grace known. And it's the story of God's gospel and his grand story of redemption that we're remembering and celebrating when we take communion every week. Community doesn't make you right with God, and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember Jesus' body and his blood that was broken and shed. As in love for you, he offers a covenant that we take hold of by faith. And so if you put your trust in Jesus to be your gracious and sovereign savior, or you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion and dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of his body and blood, which are the covenant of grace he made with you if you're here this morning, you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, maybe you're figuring out what following him even means, or maybe you're deciding still of surrendering to him, letting him be Lord is something you're ready for yet. I just want you to know you are welcome here and your questions are welcome and your process is welcome and the wrestling is welcome. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that rests in his grace completely. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is. And River City is, and we'd love to help you get to know him. And so wherever you're at this morning, as we take communion, as we sing, I want to encourage you to talk with God. For those of you who are here this morning, you put your faith in Jesus to be your sovereign and gracious Savior then my heart for you is that you might let the good news of God's gracious salvation of Rahab be good news to your heart again. As you see him as the object of her faith, the basis for it, as you see the evidence of her faith brought about by him, that it might be the kind of good news that fuels your own love for him as you see yourself as a needy sinner just as she did, and as it might fuel a life that is lived as a part of his grand story of redemption. Let the reminder of his grace as well fill you with confidence this morning that his love is not dependent on your performance. That you didn't earn it and you can't deserve it and so you can't mess it up. And let that fill you with love for him because you know you don't deserve any of it. Just like Rahab did. Others of you are here this morning And you're more like the Canaanites who have heard the stories of God's powerful work. You've heard about Jesus and about all that he's done through family or friends or neighbors or coworkers. Maybe you've heard me proclaim him to you and the offer of salvation he makes, and yet you have not received it. Famous 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, he summed it up this way, Jesus Christ can save you indeed, but he must be appropriated, or he will be no Savior at all. For if we do not ourselves repent and believe Christ is not ours, and we are not his, neither shall we obtain any benefit from his life or death. Tie the scarlet line in your window, for it will not be tied there for you. You must do it with your own hand. You see, my prayer and my plea for you this morning is that by God's grace, he might empower you to tie the scarlet cord of faith in the window of your heart this morning. That you might recognize, like Rahab did, that Yahweh, the great God of the Bible, is the one and true and only God and that he alone can rescue you from the great enemies of Satan and sin and death, and that only he has the power to transform. That you might throw yourself, as Rahab did, on his great mercy, not because you deserve it or have earned it, but because he offers it freely to all who would call on his name. Ask him to enable you to put your faith in him He did for a pagan prostitute all those years ago, and he saved her not because of who she was, but because of who he is. And so might you put your trust in him. Might you rely on him. And might he become for you the salvation that only he can bring. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for you. And we're so grateful that the story of Rahab is not just teach us some moral lesson about whether or not it's okay to tell lies, but it shows us a story of your transformative, gracious, sovereign work to rescue and redeem and renew the most unlikely of people. And we are grateful this morning, Jesus, for the reminder that we are just like her and that we are as she is, as was, desperately in need of your grace and mercy. And so we come this morning again to to lay ourselves at the feet of our need for you, Jesus. And we ask, God, that you might fill us with joy as you remind us of how you so greatly meet our need in your son. Might it fill us with love for you that wells up into lives lived for your glory transformed by your work in us to the praise and glory of you for all ages we pray amen